This is Tam Talks, brought to you by Scott Barney. Are we all suited? Okay. <laughs> also, so first thing to mention like, tonight is we are being recorded for to be turned into a podcast. So um, make sure you all uh, laugh a lot. Although I can always, I, I can always add canned laughter like um, afterwards. Um, so the first thing I just want to no- I want to say is like there's a lot of new faces here. So normally when I come to like an event and I'm a new face at an event, you're new to something like Scott Barney, there's kind of three things that you ask yourself. Those are, what's this organization about? Um, I guess I could support them. And how do I support them? So my job in the next kind of four or five minutes is to take those three boxes essentially. So um, what are we about? So roughly a year ago, um, there's a small group of attorneys came together. They were all from Scotland. And um, they made their own way to New York. They were all kind of unique individual journeys. And um, they had a common purpose, and that was to find a little community, a wee nestle in New York, the vast expanse that it is, um, where we could kind of appreciate the things about Scotland that everyone from around the world does. And that's each other's warmth, kindness, uh, bone dry humour, virgin and gallows humour, and um, (laughs) a strong sense of conscience and willingness to help people. And um, I have to pause and actually say that we're not the first bunch of Scots to do this. So back in the class, we are the class of 2018. There's a class of 2006. And um, that featured Alan, our president, um, who, and Neil as well, our vice president. Both of them can't come tonight, but they give their best to you all. And um, Roddy Devlin, who is here tonight, who is, who is the kind benefactor who gave us access to this room. So a round of applause, please, for Roddy. Roddy. <laughs> And um, yeah, so getting back to the present, 2018, uh, we soon realized three things we got together last year. That was, there's no formal association dedicated to connecting Scottish lawyers on the East Coast of the United States, let alone the United States at large. And the other thing was, there's over 200, nearly 300, legal professionals, either Scottish or they've spent time working or studying in Scotland, in New York City alone. So. Um, over the past 12 months, uh, we discovered uh, the association has enormous potential. So just to give you some pointers, uh, in September last year, we put out a survey to all 10 accredited Scottish law schools. And um, that got 370 responses, which is pretty good for like, a relatively unknown organisation. 80% of those respondents all said they were desperate for mentorship and guidance on how to get qualified or how to come and study in the United States. And here's just an example um, of the current kind of gap in knowledge there is between um, the community here and the community back in Scotland. 70% of those respondents didn't know that with a Scottish LLB, as soon as they had it in their hand, they could set the New York bar and become qualified within 12 months. They didn't know that. So other examples. Um, We have a contact with Scottish government um, kind of uh, uh, initiatives and university development funds. And we're building partnerships with them uh, in the coming year at our peak, our website has over 5,000 unique views per week. Um, so basically, uh, what we've done in the past month to kind of like capture all of this is we set up a public charitable foundation, the Scott Barney Foundation. 
Um, and that is uh, basically serving as a vehicle for us getting support to assess these graduates coming over here from Scottish universities to work and study. So hopefully I've reached point two where I initially embarked, you know, what is this organization about, you know what we're about, and hopefully you all think, maybe I can support this law. And the third thing is, how do we support this law? So I'm gonna give you the, the third box now. So in the coming months, we're we'll launching our sponsorship program. So we're inviting any law firms, businesses, and non-profits who want to support our cause. Um, we're rolling on that program and we're inviting them to do so in the coming months. For now, what all of you can do, the people that are here and anyone else you know, sign up for a membership. So go to our website, www.scottbarney.org and sign up for a membership that you prefer. And that's how you can support us right now. So now to this evening's proceedings. Um, I wanna thank Eric Anderson um, <laughs> for, from Hendricks Gen for giving this fantastic performance. He may not be in the room just now. He may have for the first time stepped out because he's finally had a break. But a big round of applause please for, for, uh, for Eric and his great job. Thank you Eric. And I also want to welcome tonight's speaker, Jamie Kerr. This is to my right, this is Jamie, if you haven't met already. <laughs> so Jamie's one of the United Kingdom's leading experts and practitioners on business immigration, asylum, and nationality law. So he's, he sits in the Scottish Government's Strategic Labour Market Group, and he's on the Asylum and uh, Immigration and Asylum Committee and Constitutional Law Committee in the Law Society of Scotland. He's appeared in national and international news outlets to discuss cross-border business, human rights, and international affairs. So after that introduction, I'm going to pass the microphone to Jamie, and you'll see why he's here. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> after the introduction, it's all downhill. <laughs> Fraser said it was going to be a full house tonight, so... I didn't think for a moment in my dreams that I would ever sell out New York. <laughs> <laughs> but here, here we are, so um, it's not a stand-up comedy. <laughs> so Fraser said that I've got uh, two hours to speak about the <laughs> development of uh, EU contract law since <laughs> Maybe not, maybe not. So it's a great pleasure to be with you all here tonight in this wonderful um, city, a global city, a world leading city, a city, um, powerful city, city full of ambition, money, fashionable people, and it's great to be here. It does remind me of home in Glasgow, <laughs> uh, I think. And, um, I'm very pleased to be able to deliver the uh, inaugural, I believe, the first uh, TAM talk. So, um, thanks to Roddy and the guys at um, Nixon Peabody for hosting, and thanks to Hendrix for warming up the audience for me. Must <laughs> 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 say, earlier, earlier on today when I was out wandering about, I was worried about two things, as I said to some of the people I was speaking to. I was worried about, one, having too many drinks during the day and not being able to speak myself. <laughs> uh, and secondly, worried about the audience having had too many drinks and not wanting to, uh, to, to listen to me um, tonight. But I wasn't sure why I'd been asked to do the um, inaugural talk of all the speakers that you could have, uh, could have had here. But then it dawned on me this morning when I was watching the, the news um, 
that New York, amongst the, the US, has um, the lowest job satisfaction <laughs> record in all of America. So hopefully a talk on Brexit will cheer you up. <laughs> so like most of you, I was left smiling when we uh, uh, read about the use of the very Scottish Tam instead of the very Americanised uh, TED talk. But I did find it a tad odd, if not a tongue twister, after tanking those uh, tonics uh, <laughs> to have to tell the truth that tonight um, you'd ask the Tim from <laughs> to do, to, to do a, a tartanised TED talk and uh, transform it into a tantalising uh, Tam talk. So, uh, the subject. <laughs> terrific. Glad I got through that. I've been practicing that all, uh, all week. But um, obviously, the subject is, of course, uh, Brexit. So, it's a serious um, subject. And I'm not sure how much coverage you've had of Brexit here in the US. I suspect more than I thought because it came up, chat to a guy in an Irish pub for a brandy earlier this morning. <laughs> so, um, but this, this is a, a momentous point in, in Britain's um, history and we've had wall-to-wall -wall coverage of Brexit uh, back home and the reality is I think boredom has set in um, back home. And 29th of March is the, is the date and it's now imminent and at 11 o'clock that night uh, the UK, United Kingdom, Great Britain and Northern Ireland will exit the uh, European Union. I should say it's scheduled to exit. Um, there's a long time yet. Anything can happen. Um, but in the, in, in the last few weeks, and, and I say weeks instead of, um, of months, it seems to be that there's a growing sense of um, unrest and panic about the possibility that we are about to be faced with the realities of um, what we're referring to as a hard Brexit or a no deal um, Brexit and that's where Britain, the, the UK, leaves EU without a um, deal and without having negotiated any um, basis or upon which Britain will interact with the, with the EU once we've, we've left and the challenges that Brexit can bring, especially a no-deal Brexit, um, in our approach, people's approach to, to a no-deal Brexit, says I think something very fundamental about human nature and about human um, psychology and um, the kind of human approach to, to life. And there seems to be, certainly in Britain at the moment, it's probably the same here, seems to be an inability to consider the possibilities ahead and there's a complete in my view inability to believe that we in our part of the westernised world could face the same types of problems other countries face um, or face the same types of problems that our forefathers might have faced or here in New York the great city of migrants that we think that we in our age and our generation um, will never face the problems that the forefathers of many in this great city had faced. And, and that had me wondering whether earlier generations down us had the same kind of laissez-faire approach to, to life um, and to real significant world-changing events. And 
I do immigration and visa law, and one of the first people that I provided advice to in relation to Brexit was a German national, and she'd instructed me well in advance of the Brexit vote to help her with obtaining British uh, nationality, and I'd been one of the few voices in, in the UK saying that Brexit um, would affect the residency position of EU nationals. I first said that in October 2014, which was a month after the independence uh, referendum. And, and then when I was saying Brexit was a 50-50 possibility, and if it happens, we'd have mandatory registration of Europeans. It was so outrageous that nobody believed that it could happen. But this German lady came and instructed me to help her with um, British nationality. It was actually really interesting. I was quite curious as to why she was listening to me. Um, <laughs> why she was paying uh, me to, to help us out of curiosity as to why she was acting so, um, so swiftly. But then she told me about how she was born, she was raised in Germany in the 50s and the, the, the 60s. And she said that they were a well-to-do family in Germany, post-war Germany. And she said that for months and months, there were rumours um, that the Soviets were going to build a wall mm. through the city. I should talk about building walls <laughs> over, over here. Um, but she, she was saying that um, there were rumours. People were saying, they're going to build a wall. Soviets are going to build a wall. And she said, it's so ludicrous, an idea that a wall would turn up in the middle of the city, dividing the city, that nobody believed it. And she said to people like her father, who were not disposed to the Soviet uh, brand of politics. We're talking about it's time to get out, we need to leave, we need to, uh, we need to avoid this now. But she said her generation thought, well, this is ludicrous, don't put walls through the middle of the city in the modern age. So they ignored um, the talk and then she says how she woke up one August morning in 1961 and only streets away from where she lived there was a wall being, being built and for her um, she was an academic um, it was too late to leave and she spent the next 30 years of her life confined by communism in East Germany. Now, that's very dramatic, sounding, a very dramatic uh, story. But having said that, what she said is that that experience taught her um, that she should always plan for the absolute worst case scenario, no matter how ludicrous um, it might seem, hence she was in to see me, pay me to help her get... Um, British nationality, and this was prior to the referendum. She wanted British nationality in order to protect her position in the UK in the event that Brexit could become problematic uh, for her continued residence there. But I think what that story does indicate is that what happens today in the here and now can have a life-changing impact on generations to, to come. She saw that in um, East Germany, and I think there is a feeling today, certainly back home, that um, that is a type of crossroads that we are standing at at the moment. And as Martin Luther King said in the 60s, he says that in a sense, we look into a future shrouded with impenetrable uncertainties. And at the moment, the politicians, I think, realise the importance of the decisions that they're taking just now, and they know, we all know, that they've got the potential to radically alter the shape of our nation for the uh, decades to, <coughs> to come. But having said all of that, I think there's far too many people 
uh, amongst the public that's still in, in the business uh, world who are simply carrying on regardless, um, ignoring Brexit or not dealing with Brexit without really considering how significant a moment in time uh, this is as we look into the uncertainty um, of the unknown. And that leaves me wondering, and should never, they say, draw a comparison to the 1930s, but one wonders if 1930s Britain was the same as Britain at the moment. And one wonders whether Britain had essentially lost interest in Neville Chamberlain, the Prime Minister's negotiations with um, the, the Europeans. And one wonders whether everyone at the time thought he should just get on with it. Let's just get on with it. Um, and that kind of, let's just get on with it, let's just fix it, let's just leave the politicians to get on with it. There's a phrase that we hear in the media repeatedly any time a journalist is on high street interviewing people, asking what your views on Brexit, what you think Prime Minister should do. And they say, Prime Minister should just go on with it. Well, we voted for it, let's just deal with it. And you wonder if the 1930s were the same, you're watching Chamberlain on the news ne negotiating um, constantly. And, and I think it's worth uh, dwelling on um, Chamberlain because I think there are interesting parallels. And, and you notice that I spoke about his negotiations with the Europeans um, because we all think when we think of Neville Chamberlain, we think of appeasement, and we think of him going off to negotiate with uh, Hitler. But Chamberlain's negotiations were much broader than that. He had to negotiate with the Austrians, and negotiate with the Italians and, and the French, and most notably for tonight's purposes, the Irish. Chamberlain negotiated intensively with um, the Irish. And anyone who's following what's happened with Brexit at the moment knows that the Prime Minister treason is withdrawal agreement is um, it's headed to the bin, I think, is the um, simplest way to put it. The reason it's heading for the bin is because of the provisions in relation to Ireland and the, the backstop, the Irish border um, issue. And the, the Prime Minister herself directly uh, negotiated the withdrawal agreement with the European Commission, and there's a 600-odd page document which is meant to be the basis upon which the UK leaves the EU. It's a deal which lays out the transitional terms uh, for Britain leaving the EU and us moving into a, a transitional phase until we figure out um, and then negotiate how we're going to get a longer-term agreement with the uh, the EU and figure out how we're going to interact with the EU in the, in the decades to, to come. But the Prime Minister went there, went to Europe, got a place across the water from, from us um, in, in the UK. She negotiated her withdrawal agreement, she brought it back to, to London, but the parliamentarians, the Westminster Parliament, refused to um, support it. And this is what's left the door open for what we call a hard Brexit or a no-deal Brexit where we leave without any form of a deal. And as I say, the, the, the issue in terms of the withdrawal agreement is Ireland and um, the fact that the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland becomes a external EU frontier, so it's an EU um, border. And that comes with everything that one would expect around a external um, frontier and at the moment it looks like we are we are facing the possibility of a hard border 
on the island of Ireland, um, which nobody, not even the hardline unionists in Ireland, seem to want. Um, but that is what that is what we are facing at the moment. And if we if we go back to Chamberlain in the 1930s, he was also negotiating with the Irish, and um, he was negotiating with the Irish at the same time he was negotiating with Berlin, and was doing both at the at the same time. And back then, the relatively young Irish Free State were playing their hand very, uh, very robustly and very um, wisely. And back then, they were led by um, the fairly youthful uh, Eamon de Valera, who was the Irish Taoiseach at the, at the time in the 1930s. And I suppose to love him or hate him, and that's a discussion for a different night, maybe not for the Scottish <laughs> Association. Um, but uh, De Valera um, was, of course, born where? Here, in New York. De Valera was born um, in October 1882 in a hospital here in New York, born in poverty. It's now the Metropolitan Hotel on Lexic Lexington <laughs> Avenue. And it's a plaque on the door. Um, I had to go and double check that today to make sure the Wikipedia <laughs> wasn't, wasn't telling porcupies, but, the, but there is a plaque to Eamon de Valera, not far from here, the, the uh, Metropolitan Hotel. And obviously, I, I think de Valera is a fascinating character. We shouldn't dwell on uh, too much, but some say it was only his dual American nationality that saved him from uh, execution by a British firing squad in 1916 because the uh, American authorities wrote to the British government uh, in order to say that he was an American citizen and shouldn't be um, executed. But in the 1930s, Neville Chamberlain, the Prime Minister of Britain, late 30s, was stuck in these negotiations with De Valera and with the uh, Irish who had recently become independent. And the heart, and the heart of the, the uh, negotiations was the link between Britain and uh, the Irish Free State. And this was done at a time when the clouds of war were above uh, Europe. Hitler was occupying um, surrounding countries, the Sudetenland and, um, and the like. And Chamberlain, and you don't, really, you don't really read about this, I don't know why we don't talk about this more, but Chamberlain was moaning publicly at the time about how tough the Irish were to negotiate with. Uh, I think he hated them. Uh, in fact, and there's, there's this absolutely brilliant quote from Chamberlain about De Valera and the Irish um, negotiators where he says that the Irish presented the UK ministers with a, a three-leafed shamrock um, and not one of the leaves had any advantages to the UK. Um, so this was in the 1930s. Uh, I had someone mention Churchill. Churchill was kind of looming in, in the background, criticising De Valera yeah. um, for, I'm, I'm doing what, what someone over here does, I'm kind of deviating from my speech. <laughs> no, that's dangerous, <laughs> and I shouldn't do it. Um, but Churchill was in the background saying, the Irish are having a laugh, you're giving them too much, they're, they're taking too much. Uh, and the kind of relationship between Churchill and De Valera wasn't necessarily uh, a good one later on. But Prime Minister Chamberlain, eventually, after moaning how tough the Irish were and, and how they were um, offering their three-leaf shamrock with no leaves with any advantages to the UK. He eventually met the Irish demands and gave them what they wanted 
And at the time, Chamberlain, not, not everything, didn't give them everything they wanted. <laughs> uh, one, there's one important thing he didn't give them. Uh, it's probably the reason why we've got a problem with the withdrawal agreement. Um, but Chamberlain gave them a chunk of what they were uh, looking for. He didn't give them the North back. Um, but Chamberlain's view was, the quote is, that he'd only given small things up to the Irish in those um, negotiations. And the, the kind of issue in the negotiations at the time was kind of trade um, and the continued passion of Ireland, the fact that the North was still uh, British. Um, but the key aspect was there were treaty ports, three uh, ports, which the um, act that gave the Irish their independence in 1921, Anglo-Irish Treaty, had reserved for Britain and British control. So three ports where, when Ireland were granted independence, Britain retained control and access to these. Um, ports and um, Chamberlain gave up control of those um, ports after these tough negotiations with De Valera. This was 1938. He didn't think anything of it and um, said that he'd only given small things up. But we know now that the significance of Chamberlain giving these small things up was ultimately huge um, in the grand scheme of things. And and we know now, obviously, war broke out the next year. And we, looking back, know well, the war was always going to break out because everyone is on a path direct to uh, war in Europe. The Irish government, under Devlin at the time, as was a right as a sovereign nation, refused to allow Britain access to those ports. Um, and the position of, of the Irish at the time was, well, the treaty that hands back the ports to Ireland <coughs> makes no provision for British use of them in a time of war. The treaty's silent on that and therefore you're not getting access to the um, to, to the ports. And therefore that treaty that, as Chamberlain says, only gives small things away, ultimately enabled Ireland um, with full control over their ports to maintain neutrality during the, um, the, the Second World War. And it very fundamentally, in my view, changed the relationship between Britain and Ireland. It's changed it. Uh, forever and defined Ireland as a, as a separate nation. And at the moment, we fast forward to, to now, Ireland with, with the backing of the rest of the European Union, the European Commission, and all the other European states, again finds itself in this really strong uh, negotiating position with, um, with Britain. And what we find is that this age-old Irish question um, in British politics has been there since the 19th century is right back firmly at the heart of our political debate um, back home at the, at the moment. And, and it seems to me that Brexit, whether it happens or doesn't happen, what form it takes, whether it's a hard Brexit or a, or a soft Brexit or no Brexit but just an end to, uh, to free movement, is all dependent on Ireland and what happens uh, over the, the Irish Sea in Ireland, and, and it seems to me that the Irish, maybe rightly so, are offering Theresa May the same shamrock that De Valera offered <laughs> Chamberlain all those years ago. A shamrock, none of the leaves of which have any advantages to the, to the UK. So, I think history shows us that we cannot underestimate the importance of uh, negotiations with our um, European neighbours and Chamberlain found that out I think Chamberlain found that out um, the hard way because negotiations with our European neighbours have got the um, 
potential to radically alter and change the future, uh, the future how we trade with our European neighbours and, and the future of how we interact with what is the world's biggest trading um, block. And at the moment, the, in the UK, the media are reporting on a daily basis on the possible impact that this no-deal Brexit could have um, on the UK. And I must say it's absolutely terrifying. If you understand what a no-deal Brexit means, it's, it's terrifying. Um, I was in London at the uh, Scotland office um, two weeks ago, and people were speaking very frankly about from their own sector, what a no-deal Brexit would mean. And just to name a few things, we are in the UK, we are now talking about food shortages being a realistic possibility. The supermarkets, all of the major supermarkets, are saying that we face food shortages in the, in, in the UK. Um, we face a shortage of medicine. Pharmaceutical companies are saying that uh, we face a shortage of medicines in the event of a no-deal. Um, Brexit. It sounds utterly ludicrous, but when you look at the reasoning uh, behind it, I'm not going to be doom and gloomy, trying my best here, um, but when you look at the reasoning behind it, you see how realistic a shortage of food in the supermarkets is, um, and a shortage of uh, medicine is. And we only have to think back a couple of years, two years, three years ago, when there was a heavy snowfall, the supermarkets emptied, and the impact of the snow on our ability to get bread and milk on the shelves. We sell for weeks. The snow was away, we still didn't have uh, appropriate supplies of, of bread and milk. There's also talk of British driving licenses not being recognised on the continent. Uh, in France, you take your car to France and your driving licence isn't uh, recognised there. There's talk of chaos at the ports and at the airports. And there's talk of European nationals living and working in Britain requiring work permits. And yeah. um, we're at the stage at the moment uh, where there's talk of army reservists being put on uh, notice. Um, and the police are preparing, police of Scotland um, are actively uh, preparing for um, quite civil disobedience, preparing for riots. Um, and they're, they're, there are contingency plans in place. Uh, to send police to Northern Ireland uh, in the event that there should be problems there. So this is what we're speaking about in the UK at the moment um, in the event of a, a no-deal uh, Brexit. And I heard your, your president here uh, today saying that sometimes you just have to walk away, um, <laughs> he said. Um, and he's no doubt right. Sometimes you do have to just uh, walk away, uh, but there are consequences, there can be consequences to, to walking away, and I think the problem that we're in in Britain is that everyone is thinking about buying a car, you go into the garage you get a tough negotiator on the other side messing you about and if they're offering you a bad deal, what do you do? You get up and you walk out, and what happens every time you know that guy's going to phone you in three days time he's going to phone you with a better deal um, so whilst there are, um, whilst there is a time to just walk away, there can be consequences to um, to walk away. And, and at the moment, Brexit's bringing a very real uncertainty to the to the markets, and it's bringing real uncertainty to um, consumer confidence, and it's having 
we're already seeing it having a detrimental impact on the economy and it's going to take us quite some time in the UK um, and, and Scotland to uh, recover from that. And Britain's, maybe more fundamentally and, and on a higher uh, level, Britain's status as a global player, Britain's status as an engaged and an influential and a stable player on, on the world stage has suffered because of, of what we're going through in relation to, to Brexit. We see the pound is volatile, the, the UK government is divided and doesn't look particularly stable and it seems to be we're in a state where the government looks like it's constantly on the verge of collapsing. Um, and I think there was another resignation this morning or, or yesterday someone else resigned an agricultural junior minister I think uh, resigned today. And then Scotland and, and Northern Ireland, there's talk of independence referenda, referendums, referenda. Um, um, given, the, given the majority of voters in uh, both countries voted to stay in the EU, so there's an internal uh, dynamic within the, the, the UK that you might not necessarily get here if you're not Scottish uh, or Irish. Um, that um, the majority of people in Scotland voted to remain, the majority of people in Northern Ireland voted to remain, just like the majority of people in London um, yeah. voted yeah. to yeah. Um, voted to remain. So, with talk of further independence uh, referendums, one wonders where we go next. But then, one's got to wonder why or how we find ourselves in this uh, damaging. Uh, position and if if you ask around, the consensus seems to be <coughs> immigration. Immigration is the reason for uh, Brexit. I'm an, I'm an immigration lawyer. I'm a one-trick pony. I can only do immigration, <laughs> and nothing else. Um, and although I'm not particularly convinced that Brexit is going to solve the public's concerns on immigration, I can understand the ordinary um, man on the street or woman on the street. Um, can understand their views on uh, immigration, on on Brexit, and we speak about these people. Probably our parents, people like our parents, are saying too many migrants. That's why we voted for uh, for Brexit. And as I say, I don't get that argument, but I understand why people think that way. But I think for me, the the more worrying reason for for Brexit um, that we need to understand is the reasons of those who are actually behind Brexit. Not the public who voted for it, but uh, the kind of make Britain great again type politicians um, who advocated for Brexit and who led the charge to the exit door. And I think if we tonight are to try and understand what Brexit is about and what Brexit might hold for Scotland and for Britain uh, moving forward, then we need to understand their uh, rationale for demanding and for continuing to insist on uh, Brexit. So when Fraser first asked me to do the talk, and I realised it was the inaugural um, TAM talk, um, I'd asked them, what format do they take? How serious is it? What do I need to cover? Uh, <coughs> how many people are going to be there? He said his first one, it's an inaugural one. Um, and I was like, hmm. 
send me an emoji back. Um, <laughs> but then, but then Freezer came out with this phrase which said, um, "Well, we're all kind of hoping that the first, uh, the first transatlantic tam talk is more Mayflower and less Titanic." <laughs> <laughs> but that that had me thinking because we all know what happened on the New York bound. Titanic, the Scots and Irish were in the steerage having a party, healing uh, <laughs> and uh, dramming, and, and I suspect steerage is not a, a class that any of you high flyers will be, will, will be using. Um, but then there's the Mayflower, and I must admit, Fraser's obviously an intellectual, because when, when he sent me that, for a moment I was wondering whether the Mayflower was the kind of per view Addison Square Garden boxer um, and when, when I realised when I, I realised that's a different me somebody else um, I had to Wikipedia the, the me plan but, but obviously he also went to better school um, than I did but the um, the me fire as everyone in the room will obviously know uh, was the ship that transported the first English Puritans to America. So, and that was in the 1600s. So I got a soul laugh there, that was obviously a very cheery journey. Um, <laughs> it was a long journey in the 1600s on a ship. But then I thought, well actually, Fraser's hit the nail on the head here because what better way to speak about uh, Brexit than to talk about English Puritanism. Um, <laughs> and can we turn the mic off? Can we edit this section out? But the English Puritanism, because in legal and constitutional terms, I think that's precisely what Brexit is all about. It's about an old fashioned and, in my view, very outdated English Puritan approach to the British Constitution. Um, and we hear when we talk about Brexit slogans of taking back control of our borders and Britain becoming a, a sovereign nation once again. Yeah. And at the very heart, so that cheer back there for that? Um, <laughs> at the very heart of... No cheer. <laughs> no cheers. Certainly no cheer when I'm speaking about Brexit. Um, <laughs> At the very heart of, of Brexit is this outdated um, legal theory which asserts the legal sovereignty of Parliament, Westminster Parliament, above everything else. And we all know that that comes from uh, Dicey. And the lawyers in the room will have a shiver down their spine at the thought of Dicey from kind of uncomfortable benches in Glasgow and Edinburgh, Aberdeen, Dundee maybe, um, constitutional law classes. And Dicey obviously, as we will all remember, said in the 1880s that parliamentary sovereignty is the very um, keystone of the British constitution. And here we are 130 or so years later proving Dicey correct in his approach because in, in unwritten terms we're radically rewriting our constitution to put the sovereignty of the national parliament above everything else. But then we have Lord Denning um, speaking in the 70s in a case called Blackburn. Um, and Lord Denning says that we've all been brought up to believe that whilst in legal theory, one parliament cannot bind um, 
another parliament and that no act of parliament is irreversible. Um, and he says that we all know that legal theory doesn't always march alongside political um, realities. And, and this, in my view, is what's at the very heart and the very hub of Brexit, where we have new political realities and uh, very brutal economic realities, but they are being created by outdated legal theory and not the other way around. And Denning, Lord Denning in that case, talks about the Westminster Parliament taking away the independence of the Dominions, so I think Canada, um, on the basis that their independence was granted to them, it was gifted to them by the Westminster Parliament, and the Parliament sovereign, and one Parliament cannot bind another Parliament, then Parliament can, of course, reverse that statute. That's the legal theory of parliamentary sovereignty. Now, that's obviously a topic that we wouldn't want to read about in late night tweets in this <laughs> part of the world. But in that, in that case, um, Lord Denning also says that, and he says very clearly, that legal theory must give way to practical politics. And that's not happening at the moment, because at the moment, uh, the opposite is happening, where practical politics are giving, up, giving way <coughs> to legal theory. And I think that's a problem with Brexit because this particular uh, theory of parliamentary sovereignty from, from the Westminster Parliament has got no space for, for instance, the Scotland Acts, which constitute the Scottish Parliament to set up the devolution uh, arrangements. They are an act of the, the UK Parliament which can be overturned. They have got no place for the Human Rights Act, and we hear that, we've heard that for the last five, six, seven years. Uh, Human Rights Act, which gives us protections, and uh, for tonight's purposes, that theory of parliamentary sovereignty has no place for the European Communities Act 1972, which took us into the uh, European Union as it now is, and is to be revoked. And the the European Communities Act 1972, our entire engagement and alignment with the European Union is simply being revoked by an act of the UK Parliament because Parliament sovereign and one Parliament cannot bind another. And on the statute books, we already have the European Union Withdrawal Act 2018, which says very simply and very clearly at section one, uh, and I quote, the European Communities Act 1972 is repealed on exit day, unquote. And then you have to go to the interpretations section of, so I'm getting very legal here, have to go to the, uh, I looked over and saw another lawyer at, at the other end of the room, but exit day is defined in the interpretations section of the 2018 Act um, as meaning 29th of March 2019 at 11pm, which is, as the title of the talk tells us, 29 days from now. So... <laughs> I thought I'd do something legal in the, in the talk. But there we have it, in, in 29 days' time, the UK is heading for an exit. It's already on the statute books, it's already in law. We are heading for uh, exit from the EU, and this hard Brexit, no-deal Brexit, remains a very real and, in my view, a very, very worrying um, possibility and to use more simple terms that we might all understand. There's an iceberg very close <laughs> ahead. 
and there's a risk that we might need to start wondering where the lay folks um, might be. Speaking from a Scottish perspective, which you might have heard as one that I'm coming from, um, the Scottish Government have been very uh, loudly calling for the course to be changed and the First Minister was here um, in New York within the last few weeks seeing this. Uh, they're calling for the um, course to be changed and they are warning about the economic consequences that the Brexit iceberg uh, would have for Scotland and in terms of the recent research, not just Scotland, it's the same with the rest of the UK, uh, the research shows that there's potential for it to be uh, disastrous because it looks like if we end up in a no-deal Brexit that we are potentially heading for a recession, uh, a very uh, deep and tough recession with unemployment rates going through the roof. Um, at the moment, certainly in Scotland, we have got record low um, unemployment and record high employment. The labour market is very tight in Scotland at the moment, but all the relevant agencies are planning for that to change um, very dramatically in the event of a, of a no-deal Brexit. So there are others out there who are saying, and there be people in the room who share this view, that there's nothing to worry about um, with Brexit. It's all hype, it's all scaremongering, it's all politics, it's all theatre, and that we in the UK, Britain, is obviously a really highly developed global economy in a, kind of, go back to the iceberg, a skirmish with a wee iceberg that we can see not really going to have too much of an impact. And then you throw into that all the passengers on the boat, can't really care less about the direction uh, the boat is, is going in. Most people are oblivious, probably drinking the gin. <laughs> <laughs> on the boat, and for those who, in terms of the general public, who are listening, who are listening to both sides, people in business, clients of, of, of mine, clients of yours, um, who are listening to the Brexiteers saying there's nothing to worry about, Scottish Government warning of imminent disaster, people are shrugging their shoulders saying, well, we're on the same boat, making a difference. What happens? What happens to us, what happens to our competitors as um, well. But I think for, for you guys here in New York, for as kind of global Scots, um, I was going to use Brits abroad, <laughs> but I thought I'd go for uh, global Scots instead. As, uh, as global Scots, and friends of Scotland, I think you've got a really significant role to uh, play because, as I said, I think we are at a pivotal, pivotal moment in our nation's uh, history. And I think that the weeks and the months and maybe even the years um, ahead of us could be bumpy, could be very bumpy indeed for Scotland and for Britain as we struggle to come to terms with the, these old legal theories and new political and economic Reality. So, so therefore, I think it's more important than ever that you guys in the global diaspora network do all you can to promote Scotland and, um, in these uncertain times. And I think it probably goes without saying that despite Brexit, Scotland um, remains modern, progressive, vibrant, resilient and an outward-looking nation. And we continue, we back home 
the old country, um, continue to look for inward investment. We're, we're still looking and supporting inward investment into, into Scotland and we're still looking for markets outwards for our goods, for our, um, our service. And I think you guys here in this um, great city, almost the capital of the, of the world, have got a real role to play in that. I think you should be seeking out opportunities for Scotland. I definitely think you should be sending work to our law firms. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe singular, law firm. I'm from Burnley's Paul. <laughs> Scotland's even law firm. Um, and I think just to finish, that with you guys here and with a Scotsman in the White House, that the trade should be booming over the Atlantic, whatever happens with, uh, with Brexit in 29 days' time. So it might be difficult moving ahead. There is um, uncertainty. There is the unknown. There, there could, might all be fine. It could be very dramatic. But I think the role of you guys here, um, whether you're new here or well-established, should be to promote uh, Scotland. You are all global Scots, whether you've got a badge or not, all your global Scots, it's what an Irish person looking back at me, but you should be promoting Scotland, it's going to be, might be difficult, um, but your job is to make sure that Scotland remains on the, the radar as an attractive place to do business and to trade with um, and uh, as a great source of, of talent and uh, people. So hopefully that wasn't too much doom and gloom. <laughs> that was you gave me a very broad topic. I I did consider tracing legislation from the seventy two Act to, to present and talk about how we're going to untangle that. Uh, I did consider speaking in purely legal terms about how we deal with EU law post Brexit, whether we pause the clock and we've got retained EU law and new EU law, new EU law. Um, we could have touched on the the jurisdiction of the Court of Justice of the European community, but I thought I'd go for something more basic and something that I'd be able to get through <laughs> after thanking the tonics. <laughs> <laughs> so, thank you very much. This is Tam Talks, brought to you by Scott Barney.